Have you ever doubted God? Or wrestled with God? Or almost fell away from your faith? Now, this can happen for many different reasons. It could be the injustice of this harsh world where the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. We might look around at the world and ask, why? Why do the wicked get the spotlight, the microphone, the affirmation? Why do the wicked get elected? Why can my neighbor get an abortion, but I can't afford adoption? What about the Lord and what about the gospel? Isn't God sovereign? Isn't he just? Isn't he good? This morning, our nation circles the drain. It feels as though it's one more lap and we're sunk. Where is God? Well, today's passage begins to answer those questions. These experiences are common to the people of God. The Psalms records one of them, a man named Asaph. He's quite authentic in the sharing of his experience with these questions. You see, he looked at the world around him, and he almost lost his faith. And he shares this experience. It's, it's a psalm of raw emotion. It's, it's candid doubt. It's a psalm of the goodness of God. The message this morning comes from Psalm chapter 73. And we'll rehearse three responses to the goodness of God in a time of doubt. I've provided an outline on the back of your bulletin. We'll traverse Asaph's confusion, his clarity, and ultimately his confession. In Psalm 73, we'll begin with the first 12 verses. This is a confusion at the goodness of God. The psalm begins, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there were no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Well, if that last verse there is a summary of the wicked, the first one begins in quite a different place, doesn't it? Asaph begins this psalm with the conclusion in verse 1. Verse 1 could be the verse of a new Christian. Verse 1 could be the verse of someone who's weathered some very difficult storms with God. For Asaph, this is the verse of a believer who's wrestled with God. Verse 1 is where Asaph arrives 
after his journey. Asaph was a man who served in the temple in the time of King David. He would have led the temple musicians. He played the cymbals. He had a reputation as a seer or a prophet. He's written at least 12 psalms, Psalm 73 being one of them. But Asaph struggled with his faith. You can hear that in how he writes. He's going to offer a sincere, candid experience of this journey. He almost lost the faith. And he wants us to know up front the result of his wandering. He begins with the conclusion. And you heard in these verses, the first 12, that he didn't always believe what he said in verse 1. He genuinely doubted the goodness of God, at least for a season. But in the end, he could affirm as he began, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. To say it another way, God is good to his people. God is good to the faithful. But Asaph was not so certain. Verse 2, but me. In the Bible, there's immense hope in verses we encounter. The author is saying something and he shifts. He says, but God, we love these passages. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, you nailed Jesus to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 2, we learn that people lived in the lust of their flesh. They indulge in the desires of the flesh. They are by nature children of wrath, but God made us alive together with Christ. How does Psalm 73 verse 2 begin? But as for me, literally in the Hebrew, but me. Asaph draws a contrast between the person of God in verse 1 and the pain of his personal experience. This contrast for him is like a fork in the road. And he's going to journey down a dark, dark, path. This is an overgrown path. It's a dark trail. It's, it's rife with thistles. It's obscured by fog. This is the road Asaph travels in this psalm. He says, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Godliness is hard. It's difficult to live for the Lord. It's going to involve courage and, and sacrifice and perseverance we might say it takes a certain kind of grit to do this. It's going to wear us down, and as we are worn down, we take a big breath and we hang our heads low, and out of the corner of our eye, we gaze and we see the world. And what does Asaph say? I was envious of the arrogant. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he makes a confession. He's tired and he's seeing what's happening out there. Where is God? Why is God permitting them to flourish? He says they're arrogant. That word almost means infatuated. They're intoxicated with their sin. One commentator writes that this word borders on almost madness. It's hard to find an exact equivalent in English. But you've seen this, haven't you? Sinners obsessed with their sin. They're, they're unashamed. They're flaunting it. The more people that see them in their sin, the better in their minds. Asaph says they prosper. 
Asaph saw the prosperity of the wicked. That word is the shalom of the wicked. That's a Hebrew word for the Hebrew people. God's people ought to have shalom, not the wicked. Shalom means peace or or fulfillment or, or wholeness, something reserved for the people of God alone. So how could God, this giver of the law, this protector of Israel, this sovereign, just Lord over Israel, how can his enemies be better off than his people? What manner of world is this? Verses 4 through 11, Asaph observes this world. And he grows confused at the goodness of God as he tries to marry who God is with the world he sees. Let's consider the troubles of God's people. They see that the wicked have no pains in their death. They pass peacefully, without torment, without fear. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. But Asaph, a man of God, he is plagued. Down in verse 14, he uses the same word to describe his daily routine. I have been plagued all day long. Consider their attitude in verse 6. Pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. In their trouble-free existence, they showcase their pride. Verse 6 comes right on the heels of verses 4 and 5. It's a result of those verses. Their pride is like a necklace. They, They don't try to hide it or conceal it. They display it. They want the world to see this. Consider their lifestyle. They live well. Their body is fat. That's probably better translated. Their bellies are fat. This is not a knock on them, but rather a compliment. It's not that they're overweight. That's not what Asaph is saying here. He's saying that they are fully supplied. They are well-fed. They are able-bodied. Yet God's people, they hunger and they thirst. Many righteous are not fat. And he says their eye bulges from fatness in verse 7. That's a bit of an unusual saying. One Bible version says, these fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. That doesn't quite capture Asaph's intent, but I bet he would agree with it. If you look at the second half of that, we learned about Hebrew parallelism last week, how two thoughts set side by side, two beats convey one meaning in some of these Psalms verses. In the second half of verse 7, their imaginations of heart, they run riot. And this here speaks to their agenda. They're, they're unchecked. They're unbridled. They're self-indulgent in their desires. To say it another way, if it feels right, it is right. This is not the best illustration, but I, I thought of those cartoon characters who get the really big eyes. It's that type of message, somewhat crudely, to illustrate what's happening in this passage, yet the eyes of this passage, those eyes are big for sin and extravagance. You notice that Asaph has devoted the most ink to speech, verses 8 through 11. We discussed this last week. One speech reveals his or her heart. It's like a barometer of what's going on inside. And the wicked in this passage, they do not disappoint. In verse 8, they speak from on high. This is another allusion to their pride. It's as though they're sitting atop some lofty pedestal and the stale molasses of their words slowly seeps down the side and harms everyone it touches. It's not sweet, but it's painful and it's hurtful. 
And we see in this passage that their speech, it both pollutes the earth and it pollutes the heavens. And they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? It's as though they're saying, God doesn't see what we're doing. And if he does, he obviously approves because we are doing quite well. And when we see their influence in verse 10, Asaph writes of his people returning to this place, waters of abundance drunk by them. It's as though the lives of the wicked are attractive or magnetic. There's something about them. Because appearances indicate that they have figured out success. They live carefree. They have seemingly unending pleasures. And this even attracts the people of God where they'll have a drink of that glass. Asaph was witnessing here professing believers going even the ways of the world. And in this passage, if you haven't noticed it here, this is consuming the entire body. In verse 4, it's the stomach. In verse 7, it's the eye. In verse 9, it's the mouth. In verse 9, it's the tongue. In verse 7, it's the heart. There's something here for everyone. And Asaph says in conclusion, these are the wicked. Verse 12, they're always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Asaph grew envious of the wicked. And it's not only that they have prospered, but that God has allowed it. And to make matters worse, quite likely the righteous are suffering. But you know what else? Asaph is wrong. Do all the wicked prosper? Do all of the wicked possess wealth? No. Many of the wicked suffer. The effects of sin in this world, they touch all of us, not only the righteous, but the wicked as well. Many of the wicked are poor or hungry or homeless. Many of the wicked suffer from disease or they pass away in pain. Asaph hasn't quite captured reality. But I believe that he looked too long and too hard at the wicked. And this is why, as a reminder, that that truth, not only scriptural truth, but, but a rational, logical assessment of the world going on around us, that's why this is necessary for our lives. Heather and I learned a quote last week. It applies both to, to us and to you and to Asaph. It was written by a man named Robert Louis Stevenson. He wrote Treasure Island, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Those are popular novels. He says this, Don't borrow trouble. Imaginary things are harder to bear than actual ones. That's true, isn't it? I think part of Asaph's struggle, and I think part of our struggle, is that we find trouble in imagined scenarios. We might assign motives to people without proof. Perhaps we assume the worst about people without any evidence. Asaph saw some wicked people prospering, and he assumed all the wicked prosper. So here is this poor man. He's teetering on the edge. It's as though his toes are extended out over a canyon, and the wind of that canyon is blowing, and he is about to have a long, long fall. But in verse 13, he begins to gain clarity. We saw his confusion at God's goodness. Secondly, we see clarity on God's goodness. 
verses 13 through 17, we see a clarity on the goodness of God. Verse 13, he continues, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have long been stricken all day long and have chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Asaph, again, shares his heart with us, and he's sharing what he believes he sees in the world around him. And verse 13, oh boy, verse 13, our our hearts just go out for this guy. I mean, have you ever said something to God that you regretted? Uh, Maybe you've sat with someone suffering and, and you're listening to them unpack what's happening in their heart and you're thinking, no, don't say that. You, do you really believe that? That's not really who you are. For, for Asaph, we would say, verse 13, Asaph, don't think this, no. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. We'd say, no, brother, it's not in vain. There's value in your holiness. There's purpose in your purity, Asaph. Don't think this way. It's not futile. This can be a hard case to make. Look at verse 14. This guy's hurting. Some of your Bibles read that he's plagued or he's afflicted. He's carrying about this pain in his soul and he's doing it all day long. I mean, we know this. This is the kind of stuff where where we're not hungry, we can't eat. Or or we're not sleeping right at night. This is the kind of stuff that takes up so much mental power we can't really focus and get things done. Jeremiah says God's mercies are new every morning. Asaph says God's chastenings are new every morning. And that is, by the way, what makes verse 15 so impressive. There there are always lessons to learn when believers suffer, not only in our own suffering, but, but walking the road with other believers who suffer. Because we know that when the, we suffer, the Lord might be showing up in ways in our lives that he might not normally outside of that suffering. Look, look at his wisdom. Look at what I call his presence of mind in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In all of his doubt, in all of his envy, with all of his questions, he's very careful with his words. He's very careful how he speaks about God, even in this valley. He has the wherewithal to consider the people of God. And he wants to never, ever harm their faith. That's what he's driving at in verse 15. To say it another way, if I had shared my doubts, I could wreck the faith of the church. We would say Asaph was slow to speak. And he didn't just blurt out whatever came into his mind. He didn't assume that everyone wanted to know his opinion. This is a great lesson for our soapbox society, isn't it? His his words have power. Our words have power. They either build up faith or tear down faith. Although he was suffering, he, he retained a thoughtfulness. It's a thoughtfulness toward his fellow believers. And he retained a carefulness. It was a carefulness in how he talked about God, even while he struggled. 
And at just the right time, and at just the right moment, a shift occurred. A change took place in his life. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Asaph has an epiphany. He has it in this sanctuary of God. Now, this could have been the tent of meeting or the tabernacle from the days of the wilderness. This could have been the tent that David built when he brought the ark into town. If Asaph continued to live after David, it could have been the temple itself. We don't know. But maybe we would say it this way. Asaph went to church. Now, theories abound as to what happened when he walked into the sanctuary. Some of them are quite humorous. Uh, This could be wisdom that he received from fellow believers. Maybe he talked to a priest. Maybe he talked to a prophet. This could be something that happened during singing or praying or reading the Torah or the, the law read. We don't exactly know here, but we do know that when he went to church, he gained clarity. Now, notice where he did not find the answer. He didn't find it in a Christian bestseller. He didn't find it on a TED Talk. He didn't find it from Oprah, from Dr. Phil. He didn't find it from Fox News. He didn't gain clarity on Facebook, on YouTube, on TikTok. He didn't find it on a WhatsApp, on WeChat, or on Instagram. He did not find it in the world. You may recall what happened when he looked at the world. It resulted in despair and confusion. So you're thinking, well, you're a pastor. Of course you're going to say people should go to church, which is true. I hope we can all agree with that. But this practice, I would call it a a, a basic practice. We, We find believers instinctively know through the Holy Spirit to do these things. And Dale Ralph Davis, he's, he's a great Old Testament commentator. He says it quite simply this way. He says, God does things when his people gather. So when Asaph went to worship, we don't exactly know what happened, but when he went to worship, he gained a, a clarity in that assembly. God met him there. God helped him there. So why then do the wicked seem to prosper It's because they are not you. You are not like them, Asaph is discovering. You are not like them, Emmanuel. And this is a good, good thing. You are sons and daughters of a father. God did not give others, the wicked, the right to become children of God. They have not received Jesus. They have not believed in his name. They are not born of God. God does not work all things together for their good. God does not sanctify them by his word. God is not their refuge and your strength. God is not their ever-present help in trouble. And they are not good and faithful servants because Jesus Christ is not their master. They are not his servants. Perceive their end is what Asaph would have us believe. Perceive their end. This is Asaph's epiphany. They are going to reach a very different end than Asaph will. In verses 18 through 28, Asaph now confesses the goodness of God. 
Asaph confesses the goodness of God. Look at verses 18 through 20. Listen to how his tone changes. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Asaph seems to recall the judgment of a holy God. That God is going to judge the wicked. Things may look good now for them, but but the future is dreadful. In verse 18, their footing is oh so precarious. They are not stable. In verse 19, they live uncertain lives. Their, Their greatest fears, they could come about without warning and they could happen without mercy. In verse 20, it's a little more difficult to interpret. Perhaps they are vanishing like the memory of a dream. That that might be one of the better interpretations. We understand that. I read a statistic. We forget about 95% of our dreams when we wake up. And I think that's what Asaph may be driving at here, that, that that's how quickly they are gone. Their memory fades. I believe this morning, believers, we are, we are champions of the justice of God. And we want to celebrate God's justice and God's verdict. But this is hard to celebrate, isn't it? If we really believe that God is who he says he is, do you see their end? Life is very fragile. Life hangs by a thread. A man by the name of Jonathan Edwards once preached that God holds them over the pit of hell as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over a fire. He is dreadfully provoked. His wrath burns like fire. The only reason for life is God's hand holding them up. You see, the greatest hope would be mercy in their passing for there will be no mercy afterward. We understand that God is love. But God is also holy. He is pure. And no sin and no sinner will stand in the presence of God. He hates sin. He abhors sin. And he's going to judge sin and those who practice it. But God is also love. And he offers forgiveness. We are all born with sin as sinners. And that sin separates us from God. We are on that thread But God loves us and says, here is Jesus Christ, my son. And he has paid the price for your sin. And if you believe upon him, if you turn from your sin, you will be saved. There is no hell in your future, but only heaven. It's a place of unspeakable peace and unending joy. Those people will enjoy that joy. And they will enjoy that peace if They believe upon him. They leave the wicked behind and they become righteous, to use our terms from today. That God will judge, this seems to be coming back to Asaph. He is remembering all of who God is. And Asaph is remembering these realities of God's judgment. It seems as though for Asaph, sitting and staring at the wicked for so long has brought about some kind of amnesia. It's almost as though he's forgotten the fullness of who God is, staring at the world for too long. And truth is now coming back. It's beginning to flood his soul. 
His ways of thinking that has been observed are, are quite evident if you're tracking some broader strokes in this psalm. Now, our outline so far this morning has followed the structure of the psalm. Every time that word surely appears in the psalm, we're starting off a new section. The markers are already built in. In verse 1, surely God. In verse 13, surely in vain. Verse 18, surely you. So we have our three markers, but look what happens in each of these sections. Each section captures the focal point of Asaph. This is going to speak to one of the problems in how he's thinking through this. We'll come back to this. In the first 12 verses, Asaph is looking at the wicked. He is probably spending way too much time staring in the wrong direction. The pronoun they, speaking of the wicked, they appears seven times in those verses. They speak, they mock, they set, they increase. What happens in the second section? Verses 13 to 17, Asaph says, I. Eight times he says, me. I am looking at me. I am comparing me. I am growing envious. I am having doubts. I am thinking about me and my problems. And what do you think happens in the last few verses? If so far he's been thinking a lot about them and then a lot about me, who's he going to think about next? He's been forgetting God. And these final verses are about him, or, or more specifically, him and you. Verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, that I was senseless and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my, and my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In light of the Lord, Asaph now reflects on his doubts. It's as though a, a new light has come on the problem. He says, Lord, I grew embittered. That word is, is used elsewhere in the Bible of leaven. You know how leaven works in dough? It works its way through. It has an impact and an effect. That's what bitterness was doing to Asaph. And it brought pain within his soul. He says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast. One commentator says, quote, I brooded over these difficulties till I became no better than the dumb cattle. This thinking of Asaph, it was not better than, than that of the believer. It was unhelpful. It was unwise. It was not nurturing to his soul. And in verse 23, God, we learn, has left Asaph alone until he got his act together. No, he didn't. God never does that. Asaph says, I am continually with you. Is that because God or because Asaph never let go? No. The Bible says that you have taken hold of my right hand. God has kept hold of Asaph. I would say, had God not held his hand, he would have slipped and he would have stumbled. So even while he doubted, and even while he envied, God did not let him go. This reminds us of Thomas, 
unfortunately dubbed Doubting Thomas. Jesus appeared to his disciples. He showed them his hands. He showed him his places, his side where he'd been pierced. But you might recall that Thomas wasn't in that room. Thomas was somewhere else. And when Thomas heard about this, he replied, well, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Those are some very specific criteria. And instead of writing off Thomas, Jesus could have let him dissolve away in the puddle of his doubts. Jesus appeared to him and he met him on every demand. Here is my hand, here is my hand, here is my side. Do you identify with Asaph this morning? What Where God has done the same thing for him, he will do for you. The pursuits of the wicked are in vain, but you could say, I have the Lord, I know the Lord. Besides him, I desire nothing on earth. Can you say with Asaph, I am weak, I break down. I stare out the window at the game in the street. I see the wicked playing, and I want that. I want to get in that game. I am weak, Lord. I'm going to run out the door. I'm going to get in the game. My heart's going to fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Perhaps many find refuge in countless places, but you can say this morning, I've made the Lord my God my refuge. Will you with Asaph say one more time this morning, God is my good? Because I believe many of you say that here today. And if we do then, a few points of reminder to conclude. First, reflecting on Asaph's psalm, be careful what you focus on. Be careful what you focus on. Every single thing in this life is either going to draw us closer to God or pull us further away from God. Nothing's neutral. Everything is going to do one of those two things. I think Asaph gazed too hard and too long at the wicked playing in the street. And I think it almost upset his faith. And you may know by now that the New Testament in particular is really big on our thought life. On what we meditate on, on what we dwell on, on what marinades in our minds. And I believe it's that way because of a situation just like this. We need to guard our minds, and in turn, we need to guard our hearts so that we are not focusing on all the ways of the wicked. Secondly, don't discount the various seasons of faith. Don't discount the various seasons of faith. Every believer is going to go through various seasons of faith. We're going to have our mountaintops, and we're going to have our valleys. The Christian life, it has its ups and downs. We know this. The Bible says, in fact, there's an appointed time for everything, right? There's a time for everything, every event under the sun. Well, like Asaph, we may experience doubt, and we may experience envy. And there may be seasons where we believe lies or we draw foolish conclusions. There may be those other seasons where we remember the Lord and where we can say we find the Lord good, but God has a purpose and a plan for all of those seasons. Don't discount them. I think that Asaph, through his seasons, I think he came out of this a stronger believer. I think he went through a few different seasons here and that in the end he grew better for it. And then lastly, 
I think this just rises to the top in this psalm. Remember that God will never let you go. Never, 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 never will he let you go. If you believe upon Jesus Christ, you are his child. That is permanent. That is in the books. Nothing can separate you from God's love. So much of Asaph's closing confession, it really points to this. What does he say? God is your strength. God is your portion. God is your refuge. The nearness of God is your good. And may you speak of his works forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Asaph's honesty. And thank you for the candid expressions in your word. Lord, there are times where we experience all kinds of emotions and all kinds of victories and all kinds of defeats. I pray, Father, for your people today that in whatever experience they're having right now, you would give them a renewed confidence of your love and your power and your presence. And I pray, Father, if we could ask that you might show them the good that's happening, regardless of that experience, that you would bring them through the doubt or the trial or whatever it may be, and that they could cry this morning, my God is good. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.